Tavern, hello to all you people out there playing your drum and fife, and all you clerics who hold up the good, righteous values of the light. I am Grognard the Young, the Young Grognard, and I'm kicking it to you guys live from the dungeon catacombs beneath my dwelling with a new episode of the podcast. Um, so we're still on the topic of building this campaign, and this is actually one of the last episodes, if you can imagine that, of this series, but... Here's a little spoiler for all you people out there who have been listening since the first episode of the Campaign Builder. Uh, I think what I'm going to do next is I, after we finish this up, I think we've got about two more episodes left in this series. But I think what I'm going to do is after this, I'm going to actually build a bit of a campaign out of this. And I think I'm going to do a series of episodes where I actually discuss how I do that and maybe do like a process uh, podcast out of that. And then honestly, beyond that, I think it would be kind of cool if we maybe, just maybe, took a chance and did a live play using that exact campaign. Uh, if people would like to hear that sort of thing, give me a give me a bit of a give me a bit of a thumbs up on the old Twitter or shoot me up shoot me a message over there on the. Uh, on the Gmail over at uh, younggrognard at gmail.com. Um, but without further ado, this episode has been a long time coming. This is episode 10 in the series, and today we are finally going to be nailing down some details about our good old buddies up there in the sky, the immortals, the deities. Now, <clears throat> we've talked about them quite a lot, and I think that this question itself, the way it's worded, might help us a little bit in structuring how we're going to talk about this. Um, but the question is exactly, what deities dwell in your realm, and are they involved? Now, frankly, yes, the deities are going to be involved, because I think having a godless campaign can be kind of tricky for a plethora of reasons, but because they make for such great, like, movers and shapers, I think that they deserve to have a seat of prominence in the game world. Um, as far as the deities what deities dwell in the realm I think we need to sort of drive a hard line here and notice that there is sort of a divide between the good gods and the bad gods and the idea that there's neutral gods is something of like I would say that that's probably the realm of of old gods so we'll say that there's really two tiers of gods and then there's two factions of gods where the two tiers are active gods and fallen gods, or gods in decline, or passive gods, however you want to you wanna look at it. Um, and then the two factions would be good gods and evil gods. So if we're going to talk about gods in decline, we've talked about it before, but I think there's something to be said about there being a greater pantheon, where you have the active gods, sort of the shapers of the world, and the idea that these immortals are those who have exhibited great feats in the, whatever domain they happen to hail as sort of their, their religious portfolio. They've done some great deed and thus have ascended to some new level of power. 
And so I like that idea because it sort of humanizes the gods and makes it seem like there's a bit of a shifting cosmology. So that way we don't have these giant long-lasting empires that span between ages. And they almost act as like sort of a, a punctuation for the cosmos. You know what I mean? The idea that a new god arises when one falls. And then there's sort of a political shakeup. And then once that's all done and over with, everything kind of goes back to its typical way of going about. You know what I mean? So uh, beyond that, uh, when we talk about the good gods and the evil gods, I think that there should be a series of five evil gods and five good gods that are quote-unquote active. Why five? I'm not particularly sure. I'm sure that there could be some numerology used, but I think five is just a really solid and stable number, and you can get a lot done with five, you know? So as far as having five gods goes, we could say that the Pantheon is sort of like a union, like a, a holy, like, I don't know, uh, 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 holy like I don't know what the word trinity would be for five the pentinity yeah that's a that's a word right alright anyway um, so what five gods would make up the good gods well I came up with a small list for myself because I figured if I was just around here spitballing to myself for a good 30 minutes about what five categories it'd be probably pretty boring so the list that I brought forward is uh, well before I begin that I will preface and say that each god, none of them have names, and I'm thinking what I'm going to do is I'm going to open up a bit of a Google Doc, and then I'm going to keep a link flowing around in the Twitter account, and maybe even in the episode uh, the episode titles, so that way, or episode descriptions rather, so that way people can check out all the names of factions and all the stuff when it's uh, finally detailed and you know ironed out. That way people can kind of keep up, and that way when we run the campaign, there'll sort of be like a running glossary of terms for everybody to be able to utilize but in any case as of right now i don't think we truly need to have names for the gods but i think that the, just the general domains will do just fine now <clears throat> for anybody who doesn't recall the good gods and the good, bad gods are separated by one single thing and that is how they interpreted being bumped off of the holy five active gods now when a god loses their stance in power, they're basically asked to pack up their things and leave their office. Now, what happens when a certain god refuses that? Well, they're sort of cursed with their hubris and their obsession with their own domain to the point that they sort of like have a perverse reflection of what it is that they stood for. You know what I'm saying? And for that reason, all the evil gods at one point in time were actually good. And there was probably one point in time where there were only good gods. And then there was the first falling out when the first god had to go in decline and refused it. You know what I mean? Sort of like a, a fallen angel sort of thing here. And then over the years and over the ages, rather, slowly but surely more gods fell into this group. And then certain other gods fell into decline when those seats kept getting filled. Now, why it is that there are these gods in the first place and why there's sort of this giant mortal becomes immortal thing, I'm not particularly sure, but I think that there's something to be said about how it's in the hearts of the mortals to believe that there will always be those that are more great than themselves, and when enough people believe that somebody is of certain strength or power or has a certain level of, you know, uh, uh, ability that eventually they develop almost like a cosmological strength to themselves and thus all gods are gods merely because they were sort of like willed to that position you know which leads to a very interesting interpretation of clerics and and how they you know do their magics but in any case without further ado our five good gods are as follows 
There will be the goddess of beauty and justice. There will be a god of knowledge and patience. There will be a god of splendor and bountiful harvest. There will be a goddess of travel and luck. And finally, there will be the newest god in the pantheon, which is the god of bravery and strength. And so I like the idea of having a portfolio be like two terms because I think that that makes it a lot less of like a single absolute and helps you almost interpret that one single category or that one single domain in a different way. Now, when we say beauty and justice, if it was just beauty, you almost start to think that it's like angelic beauty, pure and all that other stuff. But in a sense, it's just like unrivaled beauty in a very like physical sense. But when we say beauty and justice, it almost makes it seem like this beauty in a more holistic sense like beauty as in like a perfection of human form rather than just somebody who's really gorgeous you know what i mean and so having justice be the counterpart is really interesting too because it starts to almost take the concept of justice and give it its own interpretation as well the idea that justice is carried by a person who is probably kind of frail probably not very strong but it lies in the hands of a perfect person and so the next god, the god of knowledge and patience, I really like because I think that there should be sort of a god in every setting that sort of represents like monks and friars and just a typical understanding of what it means to be contemplative and to sort of like sit in a corner and just think about nothingness for a long time and how that helps somebody open their mind to possibilities and reflections and to make that a good god is interesting because it gives a level of benevolence to that action which is kind of controversial when you think about it because I'm sure there's plenty of evil wizards who take lots of time to learn things and to be very patient in boating with their time. Now, to have this be a good god is an interesting reflection because it suggests that there's certain, I don't know, interpretations of being studious that have is lending to the, uh, the idea that it's a good activity. Now, what's interesting is then you ask the question, well, young Grognard, if there are evil wizards, do they not have knowledge to them are they not patient and you could almost suggest that their knowledge and their patience is sort of like is sort of interpreted by the good side of things to be instead like a perverse reflection where it's like evil wizards do not have knowledge they have like a corrupt understanding and evil wizards do not have patience they're boating their time and they they only spend their time being patient in a sense that they're like it's evil patience you know what i mean like like it's a developing wound like it's an infection spreading like it's patient in that regard you know um the next god is the one of splendor and bountiful harvest and what i like about this god is i think it represents sort of a very actively worshipped god and one that's sort of given a lot of credit where credit is not always due you know the idea of having like a practical god for the common folk like the idea of farmers and the idea of people who are just good at their craft and people who are very good at i don't know just just making a living for themselves so the idea of splendor and bountiful harvest as a good traded god being that you know it's a god of celebration a god of jolliness a god of merriment and a god of like you know safe families full bellies you know and all this other good stuff that comes along with just being a person surviving thriving and just having an enjoyable time with your family and friends and i love having a god like that because it's so practical and it makes sense that every civilization would have a church to this because it's just the kind of god that people would want to have you know what i mean the kind of god you could expect every person to go worship on a sunday you know
Um, the next god that we have is uh, one that I also think is very important to have in the world because it represents sort of like a, a lesser god amongst the good gods that's sort of like a cheeky, tricksy kind of god that does quite a bit, but it's hard to tell where that is. You know, it's almost as if the force was like the force from Star Wars, like actually was the workings of a god. So if you have the god of travel and luck, you could think like the god of travel provides safe travel through bitter storms and through snowy uh, weather and through like bitter heat. The idea is that the god of travel is there with you. But what happens when you're not so safe on your travels? Well, it's just a matter of it being sort of like a capricious character in the cosmology where sometimes the god's just not there. It's hard to rely on it, but that's the beauty of travel and luck is that they're not always there, but when they are, you really appreciate when they were there, you know? And I also like the idea that this god of luck, or goddess of luck rather, is sort of worshipped by, like, you know, rogues and thieves who get by things on the skin of their teeth and can, you know, kiss their holy symbol and tuck it back away in their shirt before anybody judges them for being particularly religious in that context. Um, and obviously the last god in the pantheon is the god of bravery and strength, the one that's kind of the most quintessential in the campaign so far. But this god represents something like adventurers and the adventurer spirit. And it's the god that's praised as people go off into battle. It's the god that's praised as the fighter rushes into the final fight with some dastardly monster. Clerics, before they go to battle some giant dragon or hydra or some beast from the other realms, like you know, they beckon to this god and call for just one ounce of the strength and vigor that came from that god in their mortal spirit, you know? And I think this god's great because it's, again, very practical, but in a sense that it belongs to sort of special events like warfare. Um, but yeah, that's that's the five that I have for good gods, and I think that covers a lot of the ground. Obviously, I could add more, but I think that that's a pretty solid array. And now when we start to think of gods that sort of fill in those blanks and, like, could be considered good, this is where I like the idea that the passive gods or gods in decline are sort of neutral and that there's ways to interpret them as being good and bad. So if you had a god of arts and entertainment, you could talk about how that sort of arts and entertainment can be both a good thing or a bad thing, or maybe it's just a thing. You know what I mean? Art is just art. It's expression. And thus there's ways that you can imagine it being bad and good, but it's sort of just a lesser god. Would somebody worship a god of art? Yes, but that god doesn't have the amount of power that the other gods do. So even though it's a god that's revered, it's not a god that offers too much power in return for your worship. Now, does that god ever make any sort of boom into the cosmos? Well, with enough of a reason to, with enough power and with enough prayer, yes, I imagine this god could do something. You know what I mean? Some stroke of genius as the bard writes their final song in their magnum opus, and it's all thanks to the workings of that god somewhere out there in the cosmos, and it's hard to tell if the god influenced it, but that might be the last time the god actually helped anybody. It's just the idea that these gods are worshipped by people who revere them, not like, you know, pray to them every day, but people who honor them and, and treat them with a level of respect. Um, but now we get on to the dastardly five, the evil five. And again, a lot of these themes sort of follow from the from the good gods, but just with a very, you know, dark and spooky bend. Now, which god, god to start with instead uh, than the goddess of darkness and poison? Um, we also have then the god of death and decay. We have a god of deceit and gambling. 
we have a god of destruction and war and we have a god of avarice and lust now the first goddess of darkness and poison is neat because and all these gods you can imagine their counterpart that at one point they were a good mortal that became immortalized and then became evil so at one point in time the goddess of darkness and poison was the goddess of light and purity which is cool to think that something would have corrupted her mentality and when you think of any of these gods you have to think of how they become the reverse of themselves the reflection the evil reflection and you have to think like how do you interpret that evil reflection so in the case of the goddess of darkness and poison perhaps when she was the goddess of light and she was sort of like told to get off the podium maybe she said that this was sort of an act of of treachery from the rest of the good gods suggesting that she should leave would imply that all that she's brought to the table was not good enough and thus she left and almost maybe like curses those who would be so foolish as to like turn their backs on the light so those people who would worship this goddess might be the same kind of people who feel abandoned and feel some level of like revenge and vengeance and they worship the god of darkness and poison as being sort of like the poster for like strength through revenge and like overcoming odds to take down your bitter enemies you know um but the next god right, well and the god of darkness and poison i think speaks for itself as being a very necessary evil god but you know one of assassins and one for those who wish to get revenge it's just evil with a very persuasive and beautiful bend to it that it's sort of offers salvation in the same way that light and purity would but in a very like I don't know evil and dark sense that it gets like it settles a score if you will uh the next god is the one of death and decay which is you know pretty much like bread and butter for any evil gods you need to have the necromancer god you need to have the evil undead god you need to have the god that makes the dead things come back now again this would have been in a different light the god of life and growth or the uh, god of life and constants or something the opposite of decay you know uh preservation or or purity or or something you know and so the idea that this god became the god of death maybe again this one's not too hard but they became their evil counterpart by believing that life was just sort of a foolish attempt at preventing like of like maintaining a perfect state of existence or purity or life and instead the god thought well if i can just keep the dead in a permanent state of death i will have done what i've always tried to do and thus the god of death is just one who wishes to bring out a new order where all things are dead so that there will never be any struggle to stay alive everything being dead means the end of pen the uh, the end of pain and suffering and all things are sort of set equal and all things have reached a point where you know what i mean everything is just perfectly stable for once and for all like it is just stable with no masters and only just a legion of equals now decay as an aspect is the idea of like all things sort of returning to that skeletal form and hitting that point of absolutism so the world wants to reach you know bones and 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 decay like the the people who worship this god believe that decay is not only a natural part of existence but it's a sign that all things should become rotten and all things should die and so they view themselves as sort of like cleaning uh, uh you know the sore that is life 
Next god we have is the god of deceit and gambling. Now I know we have a goddess of luck and travel, but I think deceit and gambling is pretty interesting in that you have the sort of evil god that is in the heart of every con man and is in the heart of any risk taker who's willing to, you know, risk it all in order to get something huge out of it. And I like the idea that this being the kind of god that's revered by evil people who wish to take up a good chance, you know, people who are just so greedy and avaricious or well, maybe not greedy and avaricious, but people who are just willing to be like, I don't know, dishonest in order to gain. And the idea that it's not necessarily for greed, but more so for power. And the idea that there's always a chance to gain something. And they're always willing to do whatever it takes to take a shot at that gain. You know? The next god we have is the god of destruction and war. Which I think is a great one for like raiders and barbarians and Vikings and just all these evil people who come and just wish to take things from others by plundering and destroying what they've got. And it's a god that sort of rewards the idea of of being stronger than your enemies and stronger than the weak people and taking what's basically rightfully yours. And so those who worship the god of destruction and war are just the kind of people who believe that like you know, old men rule kingdoms from their ivory towers and demand that people worship them and follow their ways because they said so. But if I'm strong enough that I could just strangle out that king, what makes him so much better than me? And that's kind of just the might makes right reasoning behind this god and the worshippers thereof. And, you know, I think that that's a pretty cool way of approaching it. And the idea that you could have legions that worship this god that work together, but they all come from different walks of life. So you could have like orcs and goblins and men and minotaurs and just beasts and trolls and ogres all working under one banner to this god, believing that like there's just a natural pecking order amongst their ranks and that whoever's in charge is likely the strongest and most brutal. And everybody beyond that just sort of follows in this tide of, of aggression and hate. Um, the last god we have on here is the god of avarice and lust. And I like the idea that lust is paired with avarice because not only is it like this greed that's accentuated by an aggressive attempt to gain it, but it's, you know, sort of, sort of, uh, uh cushy and quilted by this sexualized beauty of lust and the idea that it's some beautiful goddess who wishes to gain more and more and more and more. And people who worship this goddess are merely trying to appease her in order to gain some sort of like favor or gain some sort of seat in her court. And they just wish to have the love of this woman, this goddess rather, who is forever taunting them with all that they could have. And so naturally they just continue to gain and gain and gain, hoping that someday eventually maybe they'll have, you know, appeased her enough that she will honor them or grant them some power of some sort, you know? And so I think that does a pretty good job of rounding out the Pantheon, and I think that this Pantheon deserved quite a bit of rounding out, but without further ado, we have basically the last question in this topic, and one that I oftentimes think um, gets sort of given the same approach, and I'm almost willing to say that I would kind of go ahead and give it the same approach too. But I like this next question is, do any people of your world revere nature and how deeply? And obviously there's going to be people who revere nature and how deeply is a good question. But I think that what we could say is that there are certain people who believe that in a time before the mortals became immortal, that there was only one thing that was revered 
and that thing was the giver of all life and that was the earth and so are there people who worship the earth in a magical sense like yes but i think that at the heart of every druid and at the heart of every ranger and anybody who looks upon the earth and provides it with love and nourishment knows that the earth itself is just a giant living organism worthy and deserving of love itself and respect and so the idea of druids in this world and rangers and people who just you know revere nature strongly like they're just people who i don't want to say are like hipsters but they look at magic and see it as sort of an intrusion into the natural order so it's not that they hate magic it's just that they know that magic is not as pure as the powers of nature you know and they look at things like like gods and they recognize that again those are just things that have risen up in power but each one of them has to go into decline at some point but nature never goes into decline it's sort of a giant organism that does its own thing and manages to exist comfortably on its own essentially just doing its thing and so maybe druids are a little bit aloof and they're a little bit like kind of stuck in their own path and don't recognize the ways of the other people because they're just sort of stuck in their own way of life and they don't even like recognize how magic works and they stay kind of in their own lane because they just sort of assume that those things are a passing phase and that at some point in time all things come back to mad to the to the way of nature and you know, you could even argue that they have a very cyclical view on the world, and that's why they're sort of, I don't know, passive about everything, and they sort of just kind of stick in their own lane with, with uh, the passing of events in the world. And that's why, you know, druids don't bother with politics, and they don't bother with the people. They just sort of see through everything and see that this is like when people get all upset about modern politics and they start talking about, or contemporary politics, rather, and they start talking about the newest election and people who have seen many many elections and people who know a lot about politics understand how much like you know these big presidential things are important but to an extent and when you really look at like smaller things like your local senators and congressmen and stuff like that like that's where the true power is and so in the same respect they see that magic is important the gods are important but more importantly are the things that affect you on a daily life and that's things like food and water and shelter and like this is all stuff provided and taken care of by the natural world and so to try to put all those other things above mother nature or or gaia or whatever you want to say i always loved the name gaia but to put those above gaia would be in its sense almost like blasphemous you know what i mean and so maybe druids aren't so like hard-edged with that belief but i think there's something to be said about them being justified in having a stance where they look at magic users as being sort of, I don't know, blasphemous against the ways of the natural order and the ways of the natural world. And people who fervently worship the gods are just misled and don't understand the true power that comes from the earth itself, you know? And thus, I like the idea that druids are sort of, I don't want to say outside of the natural affairs of things, but they're so disconnected and they just don't really care much for what's going on to the point that a lot of times people don't even come into contact with druids unless there's something directly affecting the druid, but the druid itself is sort of only here just because they have to be here to fix whatever their problem is, and they'd rather just get out of there as soon as possible. It's kind of like having a cliche rural conservative farmer who hates going into metropolitan areas and hates the city, and they only go there because they have to go take care of some special matter that has to be taken care of. So the whole time they're in the city, they're trying to look away from what they don't like. They're trying to avoid eye contact with people they don't like. It's just a whole affair that they know they have to put up with, and it's a necessary evil. 
But apart from that, we only have one more episode left in the series. So for everybody who's listened at any point, I offer you my thanks. And for all the people who have helped me record these episodes, again, I offer you all my thanks. You guys are great, and I love you all. And this is the Young Grognard signing off saying, DMs, be good to your players, and players, be good to your DMs. Goodbye.